What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the show. Today we have a Q&A episode, and usually these Q&As are a bit more of a rapid, rapid fire style, but I just looked at the first three questions, and I have a feeling I'm gonna have quite a bit to say on these first three. They're really good questions. Um, and so we'll see how many I get through in this half hour here. First question's about like uh, commenting, like family members or coworkers commenting on your fat loss. Second question was a good question on metabolic adaptation. And third question was about insulin resistance. And I do have an expert coming on to talk a little bit more about insulin resistance in detail, uh, but we'll lay some of that groundwork here today. I think it'll be a super fun episode. So first question is from Katie May Main. Katie asks, in a deficit, or I'm in a deficit, and coworkers are starting to notice that I lost weight. How do, how to deal with the, you know, did you lose weight? Did you do it intentionally? You didn't need to sort of comments. Even from some of my best friends, I feel so uncomfortable. And she also mentioned that this is, you know, another circumstance is just like when this happens with family. So how do you deal with these sorts of comments of, did you lose weight? Did you do it on purpose? You totally didn't need to. And I had, I have two like overwhelmingly, like somewhat competing thoughts on this. My first initial like knee jerk lizard brain reaction was like, People are dumb, they don't think before they speak, and it's not necessarily your um, job to educate them and to communicate to them and to have a thorough conversation with them. Like That's not necessarily your burden, your responsibility. And so my first thought was that it is not, like I will sympathize if your goal when being asked something like that is to just get the fuck out of that conversation as soon as possible. Like I think over the long term, I think it's important that people understand to think before they speak and how these sorts of questions make the person who's being asked feel. Um, and that frankly, it's not really any of your business and that asking somebody if they lost weight or if they did it intentionally is just not a question that you should be asking somebody else. Now, there are circumstances where you can feel comfortable enough with somebody that you can ask that question within context, but I think that it gets thrown around way too much. It's something that is talked about, you know, uh, that is asked in circumstances where it shouldn't be uh, is, you know, said in ways that are not compassionate or just like in an understanding way, uh, they kind of come off the cuff. And so I first and foremost thought to myself, people are dumb. They don't think before they speak. It's not your job or responsibility to educate them and to have a thorough conversation with them. And so I sympathize with you if you want to, in that moment, do what you got to do to get the fuck out of that conversation. Um, and the other point of view is like actually, you know, what can we say in this circumstance? What sort of conversation can we have with this person where at the end of this conversation, that person might leave with a better understanding of shit, man, maybe I shouldn't be kind of saying this sort of stuff to people. Um, and so I thought the first thing we could do is we could talk about like just diffusing the situation uh, in that circumstance where you're just genuinely not trying to have that sort of a conversation, which again, as much as I want people out there to know that they shouldn't be asking this sort of stuff, and, you know, as much as this might be an opportunity for you to communicate that to them, I still don't think it's your responsibility. I still sympathize with the fact that you might not want to do that right now. You just genuinely might not want to, you know, in the middle of a family dinner, explain to somebody that one, this is a dumb question to be asking somebody. And two, like, even if I didn't quote, have to lose weight, that, <laughs> that I was doing this in a negative mindset and we'll kind of get to that. So I'm okay if you want to diffuse the situation, whether that's by lying and saying, oh, I, I'm not, I don't know. Maybe, you know, I've just been hitting the gym a lot lately or something that ends the conversation in a like uh, at least net neutral state or positive state. I'm cool with that. And so for me, it was like, hey, did you lose? Someone's like, hey, did you lose weight? You could say, I don't know. I just been hitting the gym a lot lately and, you know, trying to eat healthier and just trying to make it to a point where like, 
this is the end of the conversation. They, they will say one more thing back to you like, oh my God, that's great, or you look great, and then it's over. Um, and uh, that, con that conversation already bothers me. The whole like, you look great thing, commenting on how, pe how people look only enhances this importance on the external. Um, not necessarily something that, I, I know that it's like, a, it's tricky because I do it as a coach sometimes too. Where it's like, oh, you look great, or you're looking great, or you've been you know, pushing hard on this deficit and it shows or whatever, but it's a fine line between how much do we want to kind of put importance on that external. And so, you know, maybe the conversation, I think if somebody says, I think if somebody says, did you lose weight? Um, you have an opportunity to expand that conversation and say, yes, I did. Here were my reasons. Here was my headspace. Here's how I did it. Like you could go ahead down any route you want, but I would sympathize with you if you just thought, what can I say right now to get the fuck out of this conversation as soon as possible? I think you're allowed to do that without feeling like you had some obligation to, to help this person. Um, if someone says something like, you know, if you say, yeah, I guess I did, maybe I've been hitting the gym more and, you know, improving my nutrition or whatever. And someone's like, oh, you didn't need to. Like, were you trying to lose weight? You totally didn't need to. Um, oh, man, that one kills me. Because somebody who's saying you didn't need to is assuming that you thought that you needed to. They're assuming this kind of stuff happens only in a negative mindset because it often does. You know, people do lose weight in search for societal expectation or acceptance and self-acceptance and they don't feel worthy of love and they don't love their bodies and all this. Those are, those are some negative mindsets to be pursuing fat loss in, but that's not always the case. They are assuming that you did this because you thought you needed to so that you could, one, be beautiful or be loved or accepted or whatever. They're assuming that that's the mindset that you were in, um, which is frustrating as hell because I know the person asking this question and, and I've spoken to her and obviously I work with a ton of people all the time and that's not always the circumstance that people are in. People want to lose fat for a number of different reasons. Sometimes it's just fun. Sometimes it's just an experiment. Sometimes it's just, you know, part of your fitness journey, the season that you're in, uh, self-experimentation. And so this like, you didn't have to, is them assuming that anybody who's already relatively healthy and got leaner did it because they hated themselves or didn't love themselves or felt like they had to get leaner to meet societal needs. Um, and they're just projecting that that is how they feel about themselves and weight loss in general. Um, and so that one's a bit frustrating. Uh, I think, diffusing that sort of a comment just by saying, oh, I, I know, like, I know, um, is a good idea. You know, a lot of times when we have these conversations, I think of family as being one, a coworker is a very similar, uh, similar situation um, where if you, even if you just want to diffuse the conversation or if you do want to open up the conversation into something like, hey, like, yes, I did lose weight. No, I know I didn't need to do this intentionally. And, and three, maybe just think before you ask that sort of stuff because you're just kind of projecting a lot of your own negativity here um, is to answer people with positivity. Like positivity kills these, these conversations. Um, a lot of people think of weight loss or, you know, let's say you refuse a drink or a piece of cake. A lot of people assume that those things are done in a negative mindset and they, and they almost want you to express that it wasn't a negative mindset because that validates their own negative mindset. And so I think about like circumstances that I've been in where, you know, maybe I've refused a drink, you know, we're out at a bar or something or at, you know, at home at dinner with family or I didn't, didn't want dessert or something, which by the way is not always the case. I, I have a drink, I have dessert, but there are occasions where I've not wanted those things. Um, and for me, killing people with kindness, killing people with positivity is the quickest way to end this conversation. So if somebody asks you, you know, I know we're off on a little tangent here, but this is just like communicating with family members in general. I think this 
this having a positive mindset. Like if someone's like, did you lose weight? And you're like, yeah, you know, I just had to. And you say the word had to, that has a negative connotation to it. That opens the door for these dementors to come out and kind of fuel off your negativity. Just immediately thought of prison Mike and the dementors being the worst part of, of jail. But anyway, um, um, and so you open the door for that negative conversation to continue when you say something like, yeah, no, I had to, or yeah, I was, you know, I just wanted to do this and I couldn't do this. And when you talk about it in negative mindset, that is what people want. They want you to affirm their own negative mindset. And so you, you kill people with, with, with kill people with kindness in this context, you're killing people with positivity. Like if you didn't, somebody asks you if they want a piece of cake or if you want a piece of cake or you want a drink and you say, no, I can't, or no, I shouldn't. Or no, I wish I could. Those are, oh, you are just offering up negativity on a platter for these Dementors to come up and just soul suck that into oblivion. And so saying things like, I'm good, and no, I'm fine, and I'm content, I'm satisfied. Saying words that actually mean that you have thought about this and that you are a happy person, happy with your choices, is a really good way to diffuse that conversation. So that's a small side tangent, but I think no matter what, when you're having these conversations, having an air of positivity is a really good way to, it throws people off, honestly, because they're just assuming that this is a negative thing, that you're on some sort of diet that you have to, that you think you have to be on and you're miserable. You know, misery loves company. And so a lot of times people are just looking for you to affirm their own negative feelings on stuff. And so answering in the most positive way you can throws people for a loop and usually ends the conversation because they're not looking to have this like positive conversation. They're almost looking for someone to sulk with or, you know, to talk shit with or whatever it is. So, uh, yeah. I mean, if you're communicating, yes, I did this thing or I made this choice, right? But I do it because I feel good about that choice. You know, you don't need to tell me that I didn't have to lose weight. I know I didn't have to lose weight. I chose to lose weight for reasons X, Y, and Z. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of some ways that if you wanna have that conversation with them, you can. And, and to me, brutal honesty, is the best way, it's just always the best way to go in my opinion, if you're actually looking to have this conversation, 100%. Um, if you're looking to have the conversation, someone's like, oh, you know, did you lose weight? You didn't have to lose weight. Like being brutally honest and being like, I know I didn't need to lose weight. I wanted to lose weight. To me, I feel like I'm in a healthy sp uh, uh, headspace about this whole thing. And I just wanted to see what getting a little bit leaner would feel like, what it would look like, what my life would be like. Um, and I did it in a totally sustainable way that felt great and, and felt like I could do this for the long term. didn't feel overly restricted and it went really well. Um, but definitely not something that I was, you know, feeling like I had to do. I don't think anybody has a, has a follow-up statement to that. The person who asked this question was not expecting this sort of very positive answer. And so hopefully that helped at all, Katie. Good luck with that. I, I, um, you know, I feel bad for when people are in this situation, um, it is not something that people should be talking about. Nobody should be commenting on your weight. Uh, you know, unless you are really close to this person and you do it in a way that is out of curiosity, out of like wanting to be compassionate and talk about stuff. I mean, even then you really, it's like there's just such better and worse ways to go about doing this. Cool. Anything else that I wanted to say on that? Nope. Alrighty, next question is from Tammy, best Tammy at 50. She asks, so if metabolic adaptations are not a thing, can you explain how chronic dieters can't lose weight even at low calories? Doesn't your body learn to be effective with those low calories or is it because they move less? So I'm gonna answer some of these questions and, and potentially ramble into some side tangents here, but let's let's break this down into a little bit. 
um, a couple of different categories here. Metabolic adaptations are absolutely a thing. I know what you mean, but metabolic adaptations are absolutely a thing. Now, what is metabolic adaptation? In short, your body would prefer to be where it is. So when you give your body less calories, you go into a calorie deficit, your body has defensive mechanisms against weight loss because we've probably evolved in a, uh, into a state where weight loss, even in now in 2022, where we can do that very purposefully, you know, uh, our biology is more likely to assume that there's some sort of micro starvation going on. And so your body can downregulate its metabolism. It can adapt, your metabolism can adapt, metabolic adaptations, your metabolism can adapt to these lower calories. Now, one of the ways that your body adapts to lower calories is by losing weight. One metabolic adaptation is just a decrease in BMR because you are smaller. So let's just remember that that's the biggest, the biggest change in your metabolism when you give yourself lower calories is that you are a smaller person. Now, metabolic adaptation does work in both directions. You also have metabolic adaptations in an upward direction when you give your body, when you go into a calorie surplus, we see Two things, two, there's two main factors of metabolic adaptation, two main factors. One is your body weight actually changes, duh. You become smaller, that smaller body needs less calories. You become larger, that larger body needs more calories. That is one of the main adaptations that happens. The second is through subconscious movement. So something called NEAT, which is non-exercise activity thermogenesis. Basically calories you burn subconsciously, whether that's through like talking or blinking or talking with your hands or tapping your feet or bobbing your head to music. Um, you know, some people will lump exercise that's not in the gym, even though it's called non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So they'll, they'll put walking in there. I think that that's not, it doesn't, it doesn't make a big difference whether you count that stuff or not. The, the main point is that there are some things you cannot control because they are subconscious. And so there is a downregulation to some degree of subconscious movement. And so metabolic adaptations are absolutely a thing. Totally. Your body does adapt to lower calories. It does adapt to higher calories. Um, they're just not permanent to a meaningful degree. That's like the main point here. When you say metabolic adaptations aren't a thing, I know what you, I think what you were trying to mean is that metabolic, permanent metabolic adaptations are not a thing. You go into a calorie deficit, eventually, like any calorie amount that you eat will eventually become your maintenance. Like that's a fact. Any calorie amount, if you eat 1,000 calories a day, eventually you will have adapted metabolically and lost enough weight where 1,000 calories is your new maintenance. Right, you, you know, you'll be extremely, extremely lean, obviously. And if you eat ten thousand calories a day, guess what? Eventually, ten thousand will be your maintenance because you'll be seven hundred fifty pounds, you know. And that that new body requires as many calories. So no matter what, you will always adapt to whatever many calories you eat. They're not permanent to a meaningful degree. They don't stop you from losing weight, right? They don't change energy balance. They're just something that we have to account for. Um, and if we're talking about metabolic adaptation in a permanent sense. One, I'm going to put up a link to a description of a podcast I did with Alan Aragon where we talked about this and the biggest loser study to a very to the nth degree. Because um, if you're going to argue that the metabolic adaptation has some some permanence to it, it certainly does not in non-extreme circumstances. So a lot of people will point to the biggest loser study, but if you listen to that podcast, it is riddled with flaws and lacks what we would probably call some some amount of external validity. Meaning it's hard to apply what was happening to biggest loser contestants to like a regular person trying to lose some weight to get a little bit healthier. Um, that they, they are a different in a different state than you. This is not necessarily an applicable apples to apples comparison. But even so, I'd still say that even in that circumstance, that study was riddled with a ton of flaws. Um, since then, we've conducted better research that has shown that metabolic adaptation, if permanent at all, 
is quite minimal and would not explain this scenario of, I can't lose weight now because I have permanent metabolic adaptations from quote, chronically dieting. Cool. So here's my issue with this. And I'm not, I do not pretend to be the, the, the all knowing, you know, that the, what I'm about to say is totally 100% in all contexts true. Just this is my experience with my knowledge um, and just the way my, my, my brain kind of looks at this. You said, can you explain how chronic dieters can't lose weight even at low calories? I need help with what a chronic dieter means. What is this chronic dieter archetype? Now, obviously, you're not here to explain to me what you meant, but we'll give some examples. Like, What is that exactly? Is a chronic dieter someone who's tried to lose weight many times but fails every time and, and gains the weight back? So maybe it's somebody who's lost weight but gained it back many times. Now, <laughs> that means that a chronic dieter would be someone who over the long term, while occasionally maybe drastically eating less calories to lose weight, over the long term eats too many calories because they are, I'm, I, I'm guessing that this person you're saying is a chronic dieter who can't lose weight even at low calories is somebody who's overweight. Um, and so, or at least is more body fat or is at least a higher body weight than they have been when they've lost weight. So my point is that this person who has chronically dieted, quote unquote, who has dieted down before, has also dieted up. So every time they lose weight, they gain weight. So every period of caloric uh, deficit has had a, you know, coinciding period of caloric surplus because they've obviously gained the weight back, right? You following? So if there's a chronic dieter, that means they've lost weight maybe, maybe many times, but they've also gained weight many times. And so I'm just a little bit, like my thought is like, if they've incurred metabolic adaptations from these periods of low calorie dieting, then wouldn't they have undone those metabolic adaptations when they gained weight again? Like, wouldn't those, met like if you have metabolic adaptation that happens when you go into a deficit, we talk a lot about how like eating more kind of undoes those metabolic adaptations, gets you back to a healthy state. And if this person lost weight and then gained weight, well then they've had the adaptation in both directions. Um, you know, is a person who loses weight and then gains weight and then loses weight and then gains weight, is it possible that on the net-net they are not fully undoing those metabolic adaptations and that there are slight, there are slight uh, adaptations that remain? Maybe. I don't, I don't think we actually have research that says the answer is yes, but I'll say maybe. But if it is true, it is extremely, extremely minor. It is not something that's inhibiting somebody from losing weight. It, it might exist, but I do, I do strongly believe that it is not something that's inhibiting somebody from losing weight. Um, you know, and so if it's not, if that's not the archetype of a chronic dieter, is it somebody who is extremely lean from long periods of caloric restriction, right? Somebody who went into a low calorie diet and just never got out of it and metabolically adapted, you know, somebody who was 150 pounds and is now 115 pounds, but never like quote reverse dieted, just kind of stuck with the calories that they were eating to lose weight. I mean, is that what we're talking about, because yeah, that person still probably has some metabolic adaptations because they're still eating low calorie diet and they've never actually tried to push their calories back up to allow metabolism to kind of undo some of those adaptations. And so are we talking about somebody who's overweight, who has had periods of caloric restriction where maybe they had metabolic adaptation incurred upon them, but also has had period of caloric surplus where you would suspect the opposite to have occurred, or is it somebody who's not had that opposite calorie surplus side thing happen, and so they're just stuck at really low calories, but they're also really lean because they've never actually worked their calories back up. 
So are we talking about somebody who diets, loses weight, has has some metabolic adaptation, then gains weight? Like the, the question that you are asking, I think is, is it possible that somebody diets, loses weight, incurs permanent metabolic adaptation, then gains weight, which does not undo or improve that metabolic adaptation, and then does that over and over again to a point where they can no longer lose weight at low calories because their metabolism is so permanently metabolically adapted. I really do not think this happens. If it does happen, it's extremely rare and probably doesn't happen to a degree that would override the fact that it's probably more an adherence thing. Now, I don't wanna be this adherence Nazi, but most people aren't, like, there is a very small, extremely minute percentage of people in the world who are eating very low calories and being really active and not and, and are overweight and not losing weight. Think about this. There is an extremely low, per, I mean, you are eating very low calories and you're active and you're overweight and you're not losing weight. That is a very unlikely scenario. Is my opinion that's a very unlikely scenario. You might be a coach listening to this and I, I've been a coach so I know this circumstance has happened where you've had a client or you are the person, right, um, who isn't losing at an amount of calories that you suspect a person at their size and activity level would be losing at, right? I mean, do some people have slower metabolisms than others that would make you think, hey, you know, uh, I think they'd be losing at this amount of calories and this activity level, but they're not. Is that is it possible that people have slower, gen- uh, slower metabolisms than others? Totally yes. Um, is it possible that people suck at tracking their nutrition and suck at estimating their, their activity levels? Yes, I think with step trackers, we've become a bit more accurate with that. And so assuming that, that this is something that that person is doing, that they're pretty accurate with that. Um, but I'd still say that even the best of us from a tracking perspective aren't 100% adherent. And I'd say the majority of us suck pretty hard at actually tracking and adhering to certain calories. So I would spend a long time on the adherence side of things first. Uh, And if you're like, nope, I did, and this person or me is totally 100% doing their best, which is not 100% accurate, but it is good enough to be like, hey, maybe I'm not 50% underestimating. Okay, just not sure what a chronic dieter looks like. You know, know, again, here's where I think you're coming from, just trying to close these thoughts out. Um, You have a client or are a person who's not losing weight on an amount of calories you'd expect to lose on. The options are for this person in the circumstance, because we can try and argue about the why behind the physiology, but let's talk about practically what to do. Your options are go even lower in calories and find out where that spot is, where they actually start to, like you always have a, technically you have an option to go lower in calories. I'm not suggesting that people do that, but that is technically an option. If you're like, hey, I thought I'd be losing at 1,400 calories, but I'm not, you, you have an option to go lower. I'm not suggesting people do that, but that is an option. Another option you have is to not do that and spend a long, meaningful amount of time in abundance, at least at maintenance, and see if this hypothesis of, well, you know, if they eat longer for a longer period of time, maybe we can undo some of those metabolic adaptations that, again, were temporary, and then, you know, who knows, honestly? Like I've rarely had somebody who is saying, you know, I'm not losing at 1400. I don't wanna go any lower. But after eating 2200 calories for six months, I came back to 1400 calories and it worked now. That, I, I'm, if that circumstance happened, I would almost, 
I would almost bet my career that it's likely more from an ad improved adherence that you showed this time around after spending a long time away from dieting than some metabolic hack upward where you ate more and then came back to the same calories and it worked this time at the same body weight. You know, if you gain 10 pounds in the increasing calories part, then when you go back to those calories, sure, you might lose some weight, but it's, it's, I don't know if that circumstance is, is a real circumstance where you're like, yeah, I was eating 1400, it didn't work. And then I increased my calories without gaining weight, which is possible, right? You, if you, you know, it's possible for your metabolism to upregulate. And then I returned to 1400 and this time I lost weight. It doesn't seem to me to be a circumstance that happened outside of you improved adherence this time around, or you were more active this time around. Um, hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, listen, it's worth a shot. I have plenty of clients who have not lost weight on calories they suspected they lose weight on. Now that's going to be some combination of, um, you know, poor expectations, maybe, um, not as good adherence as you thought, right? Maybe just the numbers that you thought you're eating were actually 20% higher, which by the way, isn't even, it's not crazy to think that your calories are 20% higher than they actually are. Even if you're good at tracking, even if you are good at tracking, 20% of, you know, what is 20% of 1,500? 300 calories. So, you know, that could be a big, big, big change um, to a point where you're like, yeah, actually it makes sense. I'm not, I'm not losing at 1,800. So I don't know. For all I know, I could be wrong. And if you take somebody up in calories, some, magic metabolic hack of reversal of metabolic adaptation is happening. Just not in my experience where you're gonna take somebody who was eating low calories and it wasn't working, then increase their calories, then come back to those calories you were at before without their weight changing and all of a sudden it starts working. Um, but maybe it's possible. What I will say, it's if it's possible, it's very rare. Okay, Sarah Clark asks, she had a long question and I kind of summarized it into please talk about insulin resistance. And so I have an expert coming on that we're gonna talk and do a deep dive on insulin resistance, but I'm gonna lay a little bit of groundwork here today. Um, and I'm, excuse me if, if you know a bit about this and I take things a little bit generally, uh, just wanna send some set some groundwork here. Um, so let's start with what happens when you eat carbohydrates. Uh, you eat carbohydrate, gets broken down into uh, glucose, that glucose goes into your bloodstream, which is blood glucose, which is your blood sugar. So your blood sugar goes up. Your body senses this and says, okay, we want to kind of deposit this sugar somewhere else. And so your pancreas releases insulin. That insulin is a storage hormone that takes that glucose that's in the blood and stores it in your muscle cell and in your liver as glycogen. So it's liver glycogen and, and muscle glycogen, and it takes that blood sugar and puts it somewhere else, which brings your blood sugar back to a, a homeostasis. It's kind of like a thermostat is a decent analogy here. It's like, you know, if your uh, thermostat's at 70 and it's 100 outside and you open up the window and it starts to get hotter, your thermostat will kick up to bring the temperature back down. Same thing here. So you could reverse that with heat and, and, and cold air, whatever. Um, and so that is what happens when you eat carbohydrates. Now, what is insulin resistance? Well, let's take that same thing. You know, you eat the carb, turns to turns into sugar, into the bloodstream, raises your blood sugar, then pancreas releases insulin. Insulin takes the glucose, stores it as glycogen. What is insulin resistance? Insulin resistance means that when the insulin goes to take the glucose and store it as glycogen, your cells are not responding. They are resistant to the call of insulin. Uh, and so what happens is your pancreas has to uh, pump out more insulin. And so you need more insulin and to do the same amount of work. 
Um, and your body just generally gets worse at this process. And what ends up happening is you have higher levels of insulin and higher levels of uh, blood glucose. So hyperinsulinemia, hyperglycemia. Um, and some ways of testing this are, you know, if you're going to your doctor, sometimes, we're, you know, you're going to get a blood test and they'll look at your fasting blood sugar. And so if it's over 100, that's, you know, this like pre-diabetic pre insulin resistant marker. Um, if your HbA1c is over something like, I think it's 5.7%. If it's over that, we have this like pre-diabetic insulin resistant state. Um, or you could do like a two hour glucose tolerance test, which is very obviously an insulin resistant test. I mean, it's a very acute test. Um, basically you have, I think 75 grams of sugar and then they test your blood sugar two hours later. And if it is above 140, between 140 and 200, then you are, let's say pre-diabetic or insulin resistant here. Um, basically just remember what happens is like you eat those 75 grams of carbs. And then what we are testing is how efficient is your body at disposing of that blood, uh, sugar that's in your blood? How efficient is your body at storing that elsewhere? So two hours later, what has your body done with that blood sugar? And if your blood sugar is still high, well, then that means your body isn't very good at facilitating that sugar somewhere else. If your blood sugar is back to baseline, if it's low on the lower end, that means, okay, you're efficient at this process. You are not, your cells are not resistant to insulin storing the gl glucose there as glycogen. Now, there are some background questions that we'll talk about, but I think there are some practical questions that are even more important. So we'll talk through some of the background questions here, and then we'll look at like more practical, like applied to the person in front of you sort of stuff. Um, how do we become insulin resistant? Um, <laughs> the first thing that came to mind when I when I wrote this question down for myself is why it's incorrect to say you get insulin resistant from eating carbohydrates. And so what we just talked about was you eat the carbs, turns to glucose, goes into the bloodstream, and then pancreas releases insulin, takes the blood sugar, stores it as glycogen. And so we have this circumstance where when you eat carbs, your blood sugar goes up. When you eat carbs, insulin goes up. And we have this circumstance where hypoglycemia or hyperglycemia and hyperinsulinemia are characteristic of insulin resistant. Having high levels of insulin, high levels of blood sugar, characteristic of being insulin resistant. And so this almost is like backtracking, this like reverse causality here kind of where, you know, people think, okay, if I don't want hyperinsulinemia, if I don't want blood sugar to go up, well, then I should just not eat carbohydrates. And that way I won't become insulin resistant. Um, and it is, again, something I've talked about quite a bit. It is this circumstance where there's a misunderstanding between an acute physiological response and extrapolating that to like long-term chronic outcomes. And so, you know, again, you eat carbohydrates, blood sugar goes up and insulin goes up. And having chronically elevated blood sugar and chronically elevated insulin levels is a sign of insulin resistance. And so there's this, you could, you could draw a somewhat illogical line from, okay, I eat carbs, it elevates these two things, and when those two things are elevated, that's not a good thing. But those are normal things that happen. Your body is just doing what it's supposed to do. Every normal person, when they eat carbohydrates, the same process happens. Now, it happens differently between us, different levels of efficiency, but it's happening. We are, blood sugar's going up, insulin's going up, blood sugar's coming back down. Where it's coming back down to and all that, fine. But this is a normal, normal process. And, you can't take a snapshot of what happens in that moment and say, yep, this is, I can extrapolate this acute response to eating carbohydrates and extrapolate that to a chronic outcome of having chronically elevated insulin and chronically elevated blood sugar. It's the same thing as like, if you work out, trust me, if you go get a blood test right after you work out, 
your body's going to look hyper, hyper stressed, super high blood pressure, um, you know, potentially low blood sugar, um, you know, high inflammatory markers, high levels of cortisol. You're going to look like an extremely stressed out, you know, highly sympathetic state individual. It's not a good thing. If you look at what working out does to the body, it is a stressful activity on the body. And so if you took a snapshot of somebody after they worked out, snapshot of their blood, snapshot of their health status, in that moment, it might look like they're not healthy. But you can't extrapolate that acute response to something like exercise and say, okay, well, it increases inflammatory markers. Well, we know that having chronically elevated inflammatory markers is a bad thing. We can't extrapolate this acute response to a long-term health outcome. This is another one of those circumstances where it's like, hey, yes, eating carbohydrates increases blood sugar. Yep, that also increases insulin levels. Having chronically high levels of that of those two things, not good. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna never elevate those things ever. That is not how that works, just straight up. It's not like you eating carbs three times per day, let's say three meals per day, accumulates to chronically elevated blood sugar. That's not how that works. You are, there is a problem in metabolic function, not in the food that, not not because I'm eating these things that elevate these things that I'm gonna have always elevated these things. That is not how that works. Um, so how do we improve insulin resistance? We can have more muscle because having more muscle kind of also directly improves insulin resistance, but also allows us to have like greater storage for glycogen, teaches our muscles to store glycogen better via improving insulin resistance. So one of the best things you can do or improving insulin sensitivity, whatever. Um, one of the best things you could do is have more muscle, resistance train. Uh, just being active, we see walking, any form of cardio, hiking, playing a sport, being active, really, really great for insulin resistance. Um, the biggest one is not having too much body fat. And so we see losing weight as by far the biggest, most impactful by a long shot uh, thing that improves insulin resistance. And the cool thing on weight loss and insulin resistance is it doesn't take a lot of weight loss for those who are overweight or, or have obesity to see a high magnitude of improvement. It's something like five to 10% of body weight change or body fat loss is where we see the majority, the bulk of the health benefits. And so it's actually pretty cool. You know, if you're, if you all have obesity, you are overweight, you, you, you know, got some feedback that you may, might have some insulin resistance and you want to improve that. It is, it's pretty cool. That you, it's not like you have to lose a ton of weight to get those benefits. Five or 10% is where we see the bulk of those health benefits. The other ones that can improve insulin resistance, getting enough sleep, managing stress and not smoking. Um, and then there's this idea that cutting carbs will make you insulin sensitive. Um, if the goal is to become more insulin sensitive, then we just cut carbohydrates, which will make us insulin sensitive. Now I'll start by saying what I'm about to say isn't that important, but it is sure as shit ironic. Um, people who are on a ketogenic diet don't eat any carbohydrates, let's say a very, very, very low carbohydrate diet. People who are on a ketogenic diet will do awful on a oral glucose tolerance test. Right? They will score very poorly on a glucose tolerance test. If you give them 70, if somebody who's never eating carbohydrates ever, there's like sub 50 grams of carbs per day. If you give them 75 grams of dextrose or whatever it is that they're getting in that oral glucose tolerance test, they will score very poorly for insulin sensitivity. And so not eating carbohydrates doesn't make you more insulin sensitive. It might keep blood sugar lower. It might keep insulin levels lower. And, and we could talk about whether or not that's a good thing, right? We could talk about that, but it sure as shit doesn't make you more insulin sensitive. And again, I'm not claiming that that is independently important. It's just like a total, like everyone wants to talk about this insulin resistance, insulin sensitivity, and then they're like, well, just cut carbs. That doesn't help you become more insulin sensitive. 
Um, just ironic. Again, I don't actually think that that's all that important. I just find that to be an ironic argument there. Um, here is the question that really needs answering. I'm gonna try and wrap this up. I don't think we're gonna get to any more questions here. I'm already on 35 minutes here. Um, here's the question that really needs answering. If I have insulin resistance, if I go to the doctor they, and my blood sugar is 110 fasting and my HbA1c is 5.8 and my oral glucose tolerance is you know 160, um, will a low carb diet work better for me per calorie to lose weight slash get healthier, right? We have to equate for calories. Otherwise you're, again, you're just losing weight because you're in a deficit, not because you're eating lower carbs. So the question is, if I have insulin resistance, if, if I get a, a feedback from my doctor, if I have symptoms, if I have uh, um, health markers that are saying that I don't, um, if I have insulin resistance in some on some level, will a low carb, I mean, this is the only question that matters. Right? We can talk about the fucking mechanisms all we want, but the question that people wanna know is, I have insulin resistance or I'm overweight, I don't feel good, whatever. Is a low carb diet going to work better for me per calorie to lose that weight or to get healthier? And the answer is maybe, but not for necessarily any physiological reason. If we equate calories and protein and you lose a certain amount of weight, you will see the same benefits. Um, you will see the same amount of fat loss if we equate protein and calories. And you will see the same benefit if we equate for weight loss. And so if somebody loses, let's just, let me, I don't wanna gloss over that point. If I eat 2000 calories uh, and I'm and 2000 calories and 150 grams of protein, and I do that on a low carb diet, meaning the rest of my calories are primarily from fat, or I do that same thing, 2000 calories, 150 grams of protein, but I do that on a high carb diet. Both of those, let's say being the same amount of a deficit, let's say both of them are a 500 calorie deficit. Not only will I lose the same amount of weight when protein and calories are equated, but I will see the same health benefits when protein calories, when, when weight loss is equated. So I'll lose the same amount of weight. And because I lost the same amount of weight, I'm gonna see the same health benefits. I'm gonna see basically the same health benefits. You could pull a study where one slightly outperforms the other, but if we look at the whole of the evidence, they tend to perform almost identically to a point where we can't really parse out how much of this is from adherence. Um, and so, you know, at the end of the day, if you're overweight, if you have obesity, if you have insulin resistance, which again, those two things are, massively correlated. Um, actually, there's a causative impact there as well. Um, weight loss by any means is going to be by far the most effective tool to improve that. Now, if cutting carbohydrates helps you adhere to a calorie deficit, so you lose weight, that's awesome. Um, and again, it's pretty cool that we you know only need to see like five to 10% of weight loss to get those the majority of those health benefits. But remember, at the end of the day, you should be choosing a dietary strategy that allows you to adhere the best. If your goal is to improve insulin sensitivity and you know that the route to do that might be for you to lose some weight, then you should then look at, okay, if I wanna lose weight, what sort of dietary strategy is gonna help me adhere the best? Because from a performance standpoint, from a the outcome perspective, they will be basically identical. You should be choosing that dietary approach based on, like, if you hate eating a low carb, high fat diet, don't do it because you think it's gonna give you radically better results here. If you enjoy doing that, 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 that's fantastic, that's awesome. But at this point, if we look at weight loss as being the thing that is gonna give us the greatest benefit, yes, improving metabolic health outside of weight loss, totally awesome. Being more active, improving cardiometabolic health, you know, having more muscle, those things, you know, not smoking, getting, you know, managing stress, getting enough sleep, those things, totally, they all also help. Absolutely, but I think those are all independent of diet and nutrition, right? Those are all, those are the things that do not have to do with this like low carb discussion. So I don't mean to gloss over them, but we're having a discussion about nutrition in this context. And so pick the diet that you can adhere to, right? If that's low carb, high fat, that's awesome. But we have plenty of research 
in people who have insulin resistance, who lose weight on a high carb diet, and we see amazing benefits. And so, you know, that just kind of leads us to that circumstance where that's kind of where, you know, I'll, I'll kind of leave it at that for a bit. We'll leave with some of these facts here that just I wrote down that maybe can be helpful. We'll see. Um, fact, eating carbs has nothing to do with gaining weight outside of the calories they provide. They're not any more fattening um, per calorie than any other macronutrient. Yeah, protein is a higher thermic effect of feeding, but let's just keep it in context here, guys. Carbs aren't making anybody fat. They're Eating too many calories makes you fat. And as far as carbohydrates, have a part to play in the calories you eat? Yeah, sure, they can contribute to weight gain. Um, you know, research where people lose the same amount of fat slash see the same amount of health improvements. Like we have research where people lose the same amount of weight uh, and see the same amount of health benefits eating high high sugar diet, low sugar diet, high fat diet, high carb diet. Um, people lose exactly the same amount of weight on a high carb, uh, uh, people lose weight. Sorry, we have research where people lose the same amount of weight on a high carb diet and a high fat diet when protein and calories are equated. Um, and yeah, you know, we we have plenty of research showing when people who lose weight on a high carb diet see benefits to insulin resistance or on their insulin resistance, become more insulin sensitive, however you want to phrase it. Low carb diet is totally fine. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just likely not superior. And at the end of the day, it's going to be the diet that you can adhere to best that will have the most benefit for you from an insulin resistant health, fat loss, weight maintenance perspective. Um, again, obviously alongside all of those health factors, which are independent of nutrition that you could be doing alongside this hundred um, percent. I do look forward to having, uh, have a couple of people in, in mind for a bit more, uh, deeper discussion, uh, into type two diabetes, into diabetic type one diabetes, um, into the average person with obesity and some of this a little bit more mechanistic insulin sensitivity stuff. So if you enjoyed that discussion, keep an eye out for that. I'm going to draw the line there. We have some other questions. I kept them here for maybe a further Q and a talk to you guys later. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.